Welcome to What's the Word Downtown, a weekly podcast dedicated to mining the depths of the word, a word that's sharp and active in downtown Tyler, Texas. Join Eric, Matt, and Mike as we get the word out at Bethel. Hey, good morning and welcome to What's the Word Downtown. I'm Matt McGill. This is Pastor Eric Barton. Morning again. And we are in Mark 3. Uh, Eric preached nearly the entirety of 3, beginning at 7 uh, last week and working all the way through verse 35. Uh, he starts with Jesus withdrawing with his disciples to the lake, a large crowd from Galilee followed when they heard all he was doing. Many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, and Demea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed so many that those with the diseases were pushing toward him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. So before this, um, before this next action of the appointing of the 12 apostles, uh, Jesus is beginning to uh, find the people doing what people do, which is what? Give me the goodies. Give me what sure. you have. Yeah, yeah. And the crowds are a problem? They're a potential problem. Not for Jesus. Mm-hmm. But it's also everything Jesus does... Is for a purpose, but it's also instructive. Generally speaking, when someone rises to fame or to notoriety very, very quickly, the tendency is to continue to draw people to himself, herself, to build brand, to create opportunities for, um, well, image increase, and then to retreat so that you leave the crowd wanting more and so that there's this, this demand continues to ratchet up. That's not at all what Jesus mm-hmm. is doing. Jesus is showing up to demonstrate there is a new kingdom that is breaking forth and it operates differently. A Caesar or an emperor or a king or a lord or whatever, a despot from any other rule, any other entity would have tried to garner to himself all sorts of praise, all sorts of adulation, all these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Jesus is not what he's here for. He's to bring forth, to, to push forward the boundaries and the borders of a new kingdom. We've said this before. It's Jesus bringing back, actually, pulling the boundaries of the coming ultimate future kingdom. He's drawing it back into our midst. And so the kingdom is breaking forth, but not like it's coming back from the past. It's like it's breaking forward from the future. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus is breaking this forward to say, this is how it's now going to roll through. History is not one series of events nor accidents after another. Mm -hmm. This is all part of God's sovereign providential purpose and plan. He's bringing this in. And so there is people who, of course, in droves don't understand, Mm -hmm. who are going to say, hey, that's new and different. I want to see the sizzle. Oh, wait, you want me to have steak? No, thank you. I'll settle for the sizzle. Mm -hmm. And then you've got these demonic spirits who are going to try to thwart we're going to try to upend or warp or pervert what jesus is doing and jesus is sort of very quickly like we'll have none of that thank you yeah so this is these are these are two two entities as it were the crowds and the demons that jesus does not want uh, in control so to speak right which is you know the resting of control from us and evil spirits is something like the new kingdom 
having its way. Right, right. right? I mean, because if he says, if he gives them strict orders not to tell who he was, it's not because they don't know who he was. Right. It's because he doesn't want demons dictating the plan of God. Right. And it's not because what they're saying was untrue. Mm -hmm. Jesus, this is a great reminder for, for them then and us now, Jesus will not be managed. Jesus is not the most amazing galactic cosmic butler of all time to go, hey, you've got power. Um, I need you to come and do these hard things for me and I'll do the important things. Just meet these needs, scratch those itches, mm -hmm. and then we'll get on with our daily life. Jesus is saying, oh, no, 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 that's old kingdom mindset. New kingdom mindset is you actually live and love others. I'm not here to merely scratch your itch. I'm here to bring the future into the present. That this present age, Paul will say again and again in Ephesians and in Titus, this present age is the result of the gospel, and it is the future overlaid on top of the present. Hmm. That's the whole book of Acts, is yeah. to see this overlay of the future overlaid on top of the present and this strange overlap that occurs. And this is a wonderful theme. I mean, what, what we see here Jesus doing in the Gospel of Mark, and already in chapters 1, 2, and 3 now, this overlap of the future on top of the present, it's a great literary narrative. I mean, guys like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien would write this way, that there's the conclusion of this age, but the coming age is overlapping. Mm -hmm. And so you've got this wonderful uh, spark-flying kind of environment in which the two ages are complementary, but they're not congruent. Mm -hmm. And so we see demons going, no, 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 we want to preserve the old age. Mm -hmm. We see humans, crowds, saying, no, 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 we want the old age just better. This age. Yeah. We want this age. We want this age mm -hmm. just better. Mm -hmm. Jesus says, no, I'm not bringing this age or the old age improved. I'm bringing a new age entirely. And so, yeah, we, we have misunderstanding, some, some misguided following of Jesus that we'll find out. Mm -hmm. People are after him for his goodies, as you said, mm -hmm. not because of his glory. Mm -hmm. And then that takes us into a very specific... Uh, the appointing. The appointing, the calling, the summonsing of these 12 disciples... Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted. Yeah. And they came to him. Those he desired. It's a sense of yeah. like from the heart. Yeah. He's calling these people to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach to the crowds. Mm hmm and that he might have, and that they have authority to drive right. out the demons. Yeah. So what we just saw Jesus do, he is now handing over yeah. to these disciples or apostles, that they might be with him and that, that he might, I love that, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons, which both the authority to drive out demons and the authority to preach is predicated on the idea that they are having been with not having been, but they are with him now. Correct. And, and they never won't be. Uh, and to have authority to drive them. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee. And the, his brother John, to whom he gave the name, Bo, Bo, how do I say this? Boanerges. Boanerges, yeah. which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So uh, this was... A linchpin because you came back to this, and we can we're going to talk about that in a moment. But it's interesting for us, and has befuddled theologians perhaps <laughs> right. for years that 
uh, Jesus wanted, he wanted with his heart, he desired his betrayer. Mm. Some people, and I don't agree with this, but have said, well, that's clear evidence that you keep your friends close and your enemies closer. It's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not threatened by Judas. And in fact, he puts Judas in charge of the finances of the ministry of Jesus's earthly ministry. It's, it's amazing, but Jesus is not threatened by the stuff of this world. Well, and, and, and he knows, he knows he's to be betrayed. Sure. And he, and certainly part of, part of, he knows he must be betrayed, but then there's this wonderful dichotomy of understanding that Jesus is God. And we get that. But Jesus is also 100% human and he laid aside his divine prerogative. So there are some things that he has willingly entered into a volitional ignorance. He knows that he will be betrayed because that's his word and he is the word. Mm -hmm. I don't know that he necessarily in his full humanity knows for sure that it's Judas. I don't know that he knows that at this point. He knows that he will be betrayed. He did say that Judas came from somewhere else. He comes from Kyriot, which is... Uh, different from all the other disciples. Different from all the others, which is interesting. Maybe it's a, a context clue, we would say, but we don't know. And that he's put in charge of the finances. He's, right, 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 right. Which is... So it seems to be, you're right, you would think that's not how, but there's what a wonderful writing of a story. God, the greatest communicator in the cosmos, immediately, by chapter 3, we have this tension that's going to ratchet up. It's only chapter 3. This gospel account has 16 chapters, and already we're given the foreshadowing and the flicker of, of drama and trauma that this is going to go against our quote-unquote hero, but that's not how the gospels work. Chapter 3 of Genesis is the fall. Right. Chapter 3 of Mark is, Yeah. I mean, he's we're, we're, we're detailed as one who would betray him. Yep. If Judas doesn't kiss his cheek, he doesn't go to the cross. Right. But th- so there's a divine sovereignty in all of this. Uh, and yet we are left not knowing in some ways how much Jesus knew. That's right. We, we don't know. We just don't know. There is a sense in which for hundreds and hundreds of years people have said, well, what... What if I am another Judas? The the very fact that you want not to be indicates that you're not. But somebody had to play that role. Praise God it wasn't me. Well, somebody the, had to be Caiaphas, the high priest, who seals his fate. But praise God it's not me. And so that's what these gospel accounts bring us to is to go, oh, I love this guy. I want to be in this guy's presence forever and always. That's different from what Judas and Caiaphas mm-hmm. were after. And so that's instructive. He, he names these guys in a lot of ways. You get this idea just like Adam in the garden. you got this renaming, this sort of redemptive recreation renaming because that's what the master, the regent does. So again, we've got the dawning of a future kingdom coming into the present. It's sort of a blah, boring, vanilla paragraph until you realize that, no, 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 this is continuing on to pull that thread of God's redemptive plan through history, but now it's taken on a, a, a new golden hue mm-hmm. as that kingdom is breaking forth, but from the future. Well, and it's going to break forth through the sacrifice of Jesus mm-hmm. so that in his calling, which seems like a wonderful thing, he is actually continuing the slow signature of his own death. No doubt. And he'll never do anything to escape or to lessen his inevitability. The reason he came, Emmanuel, God with us, 
is so that we would be with God. And he knows that that's going to have to mean that he will have to be apart from God, in a sense, at what we call the dereliction, the, the, the judgment poured out on him at the cross. He never, ever glances or winces from that. He goes directly into it. And that's exactly what we have in verse 20 when it says, Then Jesus entered a house. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a lot of entering of houses right. in this right. uh in this thing, and you know, the symbolically, this is sense of like Jesus has entered into our space. Mm-hmm. And when we say our space, we're talking about the space of fallen man. We're talking right. about the old kingdom that Jesus yes. enters in and avails Himself mm-hmm. to that sin which splatters and splatters most coldly on Him. <laughs> right. Ultimately, uh, right. so that He and His disciples were not able to eat. Entered a house, and again a crowd gathered. So that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went out to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. It's crazy. It's just, again, this wonderful collision of ages or kingdoms. Capernaum is up in the north, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. As far as that half of the nation of Israel, that's the center of learning. That's where the scribes from the north would have been that were trying to interpret the law. And in fact... That was sort of like, if you could make it in Capernaum, you might get sent up to the big leagues, Mm -hmm. to the show in Jerusalem. And so there is this wonderful precursor to what's going to ultimately happen in Jerusalem. It's happening in Capernaum. It seems like a little backwater of a town, but it's a center of learning. And it stands right on the precipice, right on the border and the verge of what we're going to find out at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5 is the other side. That's why it happens in Capernaum. Mm-hmm. He goes into this house. There's all this interest, all this collision of ideologies of what is the kingdom, what is, how does life work. Jesus is so overwhelmed he can't even eat. Now, in, in the West, we sort of we hear that and we go, well, so there was just a lot of conversation. No, 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 you don't not eat. In a Semitic culture, there's what we call, uh, in Jerusalem, they have a Jerusalemite, Jerusalemite lunch, where they just put all these little bowls, all these little spices yeah. and, and hummus. and yeah, we had one one time. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And people are always doing this. They're, I mean, you're just never not moving your hands and moving your mouth. They're just moving your hands, moving your mouth. And so when the text says they can't even eat, that's a crush of humanity. Like, that's, that's, that's against normative experience inside a home. You're eating and experiencing hospitality. They can't. But he enters in to the house to be essentially taken captive in a way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's, he's not able. He loses his ability to take care of himself, as it were, to the degree that the crowds uh, could that he could avail himself to the crowds in some ways. And so this seems absolutely out of mind for, for people who, who esteem that, that the the only way things work is if you take care of number one first, so that then you'll have, but his family who well-meaning cares about him, but his very family is still anchored in an old kingdom conception of a scarcity riddled reasoning. There's right. not enough to go around. You've got to feed yourself. How will you be able to do your work, son? Right. We're right. worried about you. Right. Well, and then you think if the high priest of the time had have come from Jerusalem and entered a house, they would have cleared the house. He would have had a very formal banquet experience by himself to esteem his regal place of prestige, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus is the high priest, we find out much later, and he's totally sworn, and he doesn't, 
He doesn't push them away. He doesn't push them away. His family tries to go, hey, 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 you're outside yourself. You're out of your mind. This is not how things are supposed to be. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. This is how things will be. I am entering into the crush. I'm not here to esteem myself. I'm not here to, to drive out the Romans or whatever other expectation was there. I'm here to be sought, to, be, uh, to have everybody who is gasping with thirst. I'm here. I don't eat, so you can. Yeah. In a lot of ways, there, there is a there is a foreshadow of a really and a blessed exchange. Absolutely, uh, as as God enters the house and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he is possessed by Beelzebub. So you have both his from the inside and the outside. There's right. persecution. The inside with his family, and the outside like it's like the inside is like, hey, we know where you came from. We know what you need, and the teachers of the law who come down says, hey, we know where you might be going, uh, and we don't want that. What you're bringing us, we don't want. Right. Stay here in Capernaum. Don't. I mean, <laughs> are they, are they, can they sully his name in Capernaum to the degree that he can't, is not welcome in Jerusalem? Oh, surely. Oh, surely. Especially as they as ambassadors from up on high in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. if they can defame his reputation. And so they, they go straight to the artillery shells. Anchoring uh, him in bail. Yeah. You are a part of... Our deepest, darkest, ancient enemy, Baal, the lord of the Canaanites, you're possessed by him or the adversary, the enemy. And isn't there a precedent for Hebrews worshiping at Baal? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? So it's like what you're, what you're doing, we've seen our fathers do before. Mm-hmm. You're leading our people astray. But we're here to preserve the old way, mm-hmm. which is in the present. We're here to preserve the old way, which is right up to the present. We And... and there's a good vocation in preserving the old kingdom. These guys have had uh, esteem, notoriety, prestige, power, affluence, and Jesus threatens that. And so we're seeing again and again and again, Jesus threatens the old scorecard. How life used to work, Jesus is going, it never really did. It worked maybe for a couple of you, but not even really, not, not on the inside. That life didn't work. I'm bringing you a life that seems like it doesn't work, but this life actually works. And so they accuse him of being <laughs> accused by a demon, which is a bit of a hearkening back. I didn't get into it on Sunday. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a hearkening back to Leviticus because there's some priestly language here. One of the themes that recurs in Leviticus is God saying again and again and again and again and again and again, do not call common what I have called holy. Do not call holy what I have called common. And that's one of the meta-narratives of Leviticus, that thread that goes throughout is man wants to call things holy, but God's called it common. Man wants to call things common, but God's called it holy. And so you see that whole Levitical, sacrificial, priestly system personified in one guy Mm -hmm. who's come on the scene, who's Jesus, and God has already said at the baptism, he's holy, he is is my my son. son. I'm declaring him holy. I am pleased with him. Mm -hmm. And all of mankind is going to say, no, he's common. And so there is this rejection, again, of the old promise that God has made that is now breaking forth in the form of a person. And they're saying, no, no, no. Not only are you common, you're less than. Calling a bad thing good and a good thing bad. That's right. Martin Luther would talk about. And the idea that uh, our, our crises or our interruptions or disruptions in what what we because our hearts are idol factories mm-hmm. we make we make idols 
of our situations. We make idols of the things that are even seemed to be good. We try to make ultimate. And God in Christ is this day, whatever day you're watching this, <laughs> is this day seeking to deliver you back to sanity where you stop calling the thing ultimate that's actually common and start ex- acknowledging he who is ultimate, who you, by your calling this thing ultimate, have reduced God somehow. You've reduced God right. in your mind's eye and in your heart. And so Jesus is about turning this perspective upside down so that we can see that Jesus operates out of already being called good. Yes. Of, out of, he operates his full, the fullness of his ministry is an outpouring of the word that is spoken over him to say, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. A lot of times I, I t- tell Maggie or Blythe, uh, I'm pleased with you after they do something. <laughs> right. 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 Which, which trains them to perform Right. In order to receive blessing. Yeah. That is old kingdom. Mm-hmm. Jesus is called by God, his son with whom he's well pleased, before he does anything of note. Mm-hmm. Right. The old system is transactional. It's turn the wheel, pull the crank, get the cookie. Jesus says, no, I give you. It's, it's, and in light of that, having received the cookie, mm-hmm. you can live without having to grasp for any more cookies. Mm-hmm. Because... Our hearts as idol factories, all of it stems back to the singular kernel of our sin, which is, I will be God. I will be God. And I can be little God, or I can be little s, sovereign, in a construct or a context that I have control. But Jesus says, you're dangerously unqualified to have that control, and I love you so much that I will demonstrate that you don't want, you shouldn't have that control. Mm -hmm. That is a vestige of our fallenness. Mm -hmm. The corruption, the corrosion of our mind is that we think we can control, and it's been very celebrated in our culture. Mm -hmm. Captain of my faith, master of my soul, all these kinds of things, and Jesus goes, no, I love you way too much for that. And so he enters into this very central expression that he gets to in verse 27 when he talks about the binding of the strong man. And this is such a brilliant God-man way of summarizing the previous three chapters of Mark's gospel and also preparing for the remainder of Mark's gospel. Satan is strong. He has the whole world in captivity. It's a hostage situation. If I come and just obliterate the strong man, then I wipe out all the hostages. I'm not going to do that. I've already demonstrated that I have more strength by going into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days. I'm stronger, and I'm now showing you with the casting out of demons, with the healing of withered hands, with the, we'll see, even as the gospel tension increases, the, the raising to walk in newness of life of people who have died. I'm stronger, and I'm going to rescue, and I'm offering rescue to any and all who will be taken out of the strong man's house. I have that power, and I have that will. And I'm that good, I will do it, and to, whatever it takes. And I have to go into the strong That's man's right. house. I mean, again, there's this intimate language of Jesus entering into the darkness. Yep. Volitionally, not because he has to, whatever that might mean, because he must, because he loves the Father, yes, but because he loves us more than we'll ever fully comprehend. I mean, the heart of Jesus is stirred to visceral grunting, weeping when he considers the plight of all of these people, sheep without a shepherd. And so I will rescue my sheep from this strong man. I'm stronger. 
and they, they, they just can't understand. They know what he's talking about. They know exactly what he's talking about. And he sees it. He discerns it just like he, he discerned when the paralytic was lowered down. Mm-hmm. He discerns their hearts. And he says, let me, let me just tell you. He doesn't accuse them of this. The text is careful. He doesn't accuse them he of this. He speaks to them in parables. He speaks to them in parables. And lets the Holy Spirit do its work in a way. Absolutely. And yet, he's very cautionary and very clear. Listen, if you attribute what I'm doing or the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of the enemy, that is going to put you in a cycle and a, a repeated hamster wheel of consequence that should it go into eternity, there's no forgiveness for that. So the, the window of forgiveness for that closes at physical death. As much as I would like that to not be the case, that's the case. And so there's no forgiveness for that sin of perpetual disbelief. Now, it's not a thing where, hey, this one time when I was eight years old, I failed a math test in the third grade, and I shook my fist at God and said, God, I hate you. Well, that's it. I'm out forever. Absolutely not at all what Jesus is talking about. But is there something here for us? And I, you'll have to tell me about the, uh, the proper hermeneutic, right? But is there something for us in so much as like attributing to Satan or attributing to the devil the places of our life that we can't understand, the valleys, if you will? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do we not deprive ourselves from the very God who is present in the midst of it? Like if, if, if I say... Uh, this thing that's happening, if this this is of darkness or this is of, you know, the God has nothing to do with this. It's like, am I not depriving myself of the very illumination and so, so, so sort of in my own functional theology undoing what Paul has said in, in when he writes, uh, you know, for this, this, what is it that he's working all things for the good of those who are mm-hmm. called according to his purposes. That, that, e- that, that even includes those things in which you think, God could have nothing to do with this. Mm-hmm. That this scripture is saying Jesus enters into your house to bind up that strong man, that old dead man within you, to redeem you again and again and yeah. again. Call it a good thing, even if it hurts like hell. Right. Yeah. I, and that is certainly a truth. And that is certainly true. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He is with me. And we have to acknowledge that. We must be prescient of that truth at all times. In particular, however, this specific text is talking about, hey, this 28 comes after verse 27. Well, duh. When he goes into this deal of truly, truly, I say to you, if you reject what I'm doing in this specific telling of going into the strong man's house and binding him because I'm stronger, and that specific thing, that is tantamount to disbelief or a rejection of the salvific invitation or summons that God gives, mm-hmm. the general call. Mm-hmm. That specifically, there's no forgiveness because that rejection persists until the very moment you confess it as sin. Now, Jesus doesn't go into a fully orbed systematic theology or soteriology here, but we know from the rest of our New Testament, any and all sin is obliterated the moment it's acknowledged as sin. And so he goes on to say, all blasphemies, all things that men utter will be forgiven. So that's kind of also how we know. But it is a saying, I see what you are claiming. I reject that. There's other paths up the mountain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God says, no, no, no. That 
begins to push you on a path of divergence and seals you. Your conscience gets seared. Romans 1, God turns you over increasingly to your own self. And ultimately, there is no, there is no forgiveness for that. So we didn't talk about this again on Sunday because there's just not enough time, even though it was a long morning. Mm-hmm. There's a gross, I think, misunderstanding of what hell is. And when we talk about hell, we should also do so with a tremor in our voice and a tear in our eye because it's unspeakably horrific. And I know that the the church for 2,000 years has um, gotten it wrong in trying to celebrate the glories of unjust sinners. And it's a horrible thing. Jesus never, ever, ever talked about hell glibly. It's a horror. But hell is not because... This sin of adultery or this sin of dishonesty or this sin of theft takes 100,000 years to pay for for dishonesty. It takes 250,000 years to pay for adultery. No, that's not at all. Hell is the perpetual judgment for disbelief. And so when Jesus says this, it sort of shakes the earth's crust under our feet, or it should. Hey, listen, disbelief is a really big deal. And so the whole Gospel of Mark, written by Mark to some Romans from Rome, who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? What do you do with Jesus? It's time to ask yourself, the last crusade, Indiana Jones, as he's in the temple, the guy asks him, the villain, it's time to ask yourself, Dr. Jones, what do you really believe? Not what do you understand, not even what do you actually confess that you agree with, but what do you actually stand on? What do you really believe? Mm. And so that's Mark's question as he's orienting all of these things together, writing both to the churches of Rome, but also to non-believers so that they might believe. What do you do with Jesus? Who do you say that he is? What do you really believe about him? And so it's it's a it's a convicting question. And it ends with this final with this we 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 heard back up in uh uh, 21, when his family heard about uh, this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Well, now the family arrives. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. That's yeah. inter- interesting, yeah. interesting yes. language. They don't come yes. into the house. They sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mothers and brothers are outside looking for you. Whew. So now the question becomes uh, one of, like, are you tied to this world? Yeah. Which calling uh, will you act out of? The, the calling of uh, your, your family of origin or your father in heaven who has, has called you the son of God? Yeah. Uh, and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And I just think of like a long pause in the room oh yeah before he answers his own question and he said he looked at those seated mm-hmm. interesting who were with him inside in a, in a circle around him and i like that also that it was in a circle around him mm-hmm. uh, here are my brothers and mother mother and brothers whoever does god's will is my brother and sister and mother um, so what does he mean by does God's will. <laughs> yeah. Well, for starters, he's not rejecting that Mary is his biological mother. He's not rejecting that. That's been, unfortunately, a grotesque in Protestantism hmm. for many, many centuries has been a rejection of Mary. It's not at all what Jesus is doing. 
He's pointing to, again, the pulling back of this new age into the present. This is my family. This is my, this is my household. In my father's house are many rooms. And I go to prepare a place for you. That's John in chapter 14. Who does God's will perfectly? Let's see. Who is nobody? Mm-hmm. So that's terrifying. Unless we understand what Jesus is saying, I'm here to bind the strong man and to have you be found in me. Jesus is the one who does the will of God perfectly at all times in thought, word, and deed. And all these people with grotesque infirmities and withered hands and having just been purged from demons and all these things, you look at them and go, that's the family of Yahweh? Yes. Yes, because the kingdom has been stretched back. You can be in because of him, because he has bound the strong man, because he's stronger. Because he's entered into your house. Yes, he's entered in and we've given access not just to the front room that we actually took the time to clean up. No, 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 no. To all the dark nooks and crannies, all the crevices, all the closets. He's, it's his. Which may take some time for you to acknowledge your resistance to those crooks and crannies. In other words, he's in your house, but have you let him in the bathroom? That's right. Has he been into the closet? That's right. Has he been under, down into the basement where you thought he wouldn't want to go or thought you could maybe prevent him from going. There is a reason we aren't raptured directly into his full presence the moment we are converted. Mm-hmm. Because there is still a season of overlap in our own lives of which those things are happening and we go through valleys and long dark nights of the soul and God is at work preparing us in this age for the next age because of what's already been done. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. Mm-hmm. And so this narrative given to us by the Gospel of Mark with the, the family bookends in the middle is wonderful. Because first you got his kinfolk, then you got his actual mother and biological siblings who are the ones whom the stronger man has freed from the strong man. That's his family. Mm-hmm. So what do you think? And that he frees them in his strength by being made weak. That's exactly right. Uh, that was exactly. that was one I, that was the one thing I wanted to jump up when you were saying, but Jesus is stronger. I was like, and yes, he was strong enough to to the to the to the portion that I was able to preach the week before. He was strong enough to discern that, in order to save humanity, he had to lay down his strength rather than take it up and exert it. Right. So we get a flicker of that. We don't know that just yet in Mark three. We know that because we live in the twenty first century. Sure. We know how the story's going to go. Here, Mark is setting us up for, hey, the stronger man, but there's a betrayer. Mm-hmm. And so we're getting prepared for when the strongest will lay it down. Mm-hmm. And as an ultimate demonstration of strength, we'll become utterly helpless and weak. Now that, that's the kind of, that's the kind of king that we would say, I'll follow that king. Yes. We'll see you uh, Sunday for... Chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Excited about that. God bless. Downtown. 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 See you soon. Bye.